It's March 1953 in East Germany. 21-year-old Inga Lehmann steps out of the icy waters of the Saale River as a newly baptized member of the church. Henry Burkhardt, a young man serving in the East German Mission Presidency, performs her confirmation. Their mutual interest eventually leads them to courting and marrying. This couple continue their faithful service to the saints in East Germany in the face of strict communist restrictions. This inspiring story is next in chapter 37 with real intent. This is Saints, Volume 3, the podcast. Welcome to the Saints podcast. I'm Shailen Back. And I'm James Perry. Joining us today, we have Matt Heiss, a manager in the church history department, and Tobias Burkhart, the son of Henry and Inga Burkhart. Thank you both for joining us today, and welcome to the podcast. Good to be here. Oh, thank you. Well, Tobias, this is the first time we've had you on the podcast. Do you mind just sharing a little bit about yourself? Well, as you already said, my parents are Henry and Inge Burkhardt, and they have been obviously great parents. It's been quite a ride over all these years, watching them serve in the church and the Lord, and then trying to make things happen where sometimes there didn't seem any way to do so. We're so lucky to have you, and especially to have this personal connection. It really is such a blessing to be able to hear your perspective. And just to jump into the chapter, in these scenes, we get the sense that Henry Burkhardt is focused on the work of the Lord. Why would you say he was so committed to living the gospel and serving in the church? I think definitely because of his testimony of the truthfulness of the gospel. And it's probably a little bit of a speculation on my part, but the gospel saved his life, essentially. Because when he was a young man just finishing his apprenticeship with the German Railroad under East German rule, which was communism after World War II, he was basically given an ultimatum to say either join the East German youth organization, which is a very political organization, or not have any luck in advancing in his profession. So at that time, he talked to his district president, and his district president asked if he had considered serving a mission. And from what I understand, he was willing to do so, and things fell into place from then on. And Matt, you met Henry Burkhardt in Germany not long after the fall of the Berlin Wall. I wonder if you could just tell us what your first impressions were when you met and spoke with him 30-plus years ago. Yeah, thank you, James. I was intimidated because I was sitting across the desk from somebody who had played such a crucial and important role in the history of the church in the German Democratic Republic. And I did not want to blow that interview, so that's why I was a little bit nervous. His humility and his demeanor set me at ease. And I'm thinking that he probably had that same humility and demeanor as he had to go represent the church to East German government officials. And that would have been really sort of a disarming approach to these people who were probably accustomed to combative situations or authoritarian situations. And here comes Henry Burkhardt with sort of like hat in hand representing the church. But I think that was not necessarily a natural trait he had to work on that, from what I understand, because when he was in general conference in the early 70s, President Kimball 
him aside and says, you need to build great relations with your East German government. And my dad was like, how can I deal with those guys? And I picture President Kimball just saying, you can do it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You know what? Your dad told me that story. And that was one of the pivotal moments in his life. And I think that what Tobias said to your first question of why he was so committed is spot on. But as I thought about that, I actually cheated and did a little bit of research. I went back to the interview I recorded with him, and I found a couple of more reasons that I think are part of Henry's background that made him who he was. Let me just share those. And Tobias, if I start preaching false doctrine, you can correct me. Um, <laughs> the, the first one is Henry was third generation Latter-day Saint, and I think he was aware of his heritage. He was certainly taught by goodly parents. The third reason is he seems to have been born with a testimony. Now, that's kind of an interesting thing. But I've got a quote from my interview where he said this, and this is a quote. My parents have always taught me and my siblings the principles of the gospel. And in fact, I have never had any problem in my life to feel a testimony or to doubt the truthfulness of the gospel in any way. As for me, it was true. That was simply my conviction. And I'm thinking, holy cow, it's almost like he was born with that testimony. As Tobias mentioned, his life was saved when he was at that critical juncture being pressured to join the FDJ, the Freie Deutsche Jugend, or the Free German Youth Communist Party. He was also mentored by a branch president who understood the importance of active involvement. When he was 14 years old, he was made the branch secretary or the branch clerk. And in the interview I recorded with him, he told me, I was always busy. And I think that was a part of being absolutely committed. And finally, I'll just throw this out there. He had experienced the horrors of the Third Reich. And that stood in stark contrast to the gospel and the church. And I think that influenced him. From a young age, he could see the difference between the world and the gospel. And for him to choose the gospel, there was probably no question. And I think since you brought that up, one thing that I'd like to add to that is it wasn't that he hated the communists or communism, that he didn't want to join the Free German Youth, but he saw a mirror image of what had happened in Nazi Germany because Hitler's youth, he was forced to participate in that as well. And he never enjoyed any of those hollow organizations in essence because it was so worldly. And I think that's an important note to make because he had very good contacts with everyone he came across. And I mean, he was friends with my teacher in school who was a devout communist. He said, if every communist was like that, I'd be happy. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Well, thank you both for the insights into Henry. I'd like to take a moment, though, to pivot towards Inga and to talk about your mother, Tobias, I wonder if you could tell us a little more about how she met the church in the first place. Well, I think it may sound very cliche, but she met the church through missionaries, from what I understand, and they just involved her in frequent activities in the branch in Bernburg. At that time, the way I imagine it, it was very, very dreary time still after World War II, and still a lot of rebuilding going on. 
but she had friends and they invited her to church and she liked the activities. And at that time, it was literally the way I understand it, that the missionaries did everything. They mm-hmm. were leaders of the branch and they kept everything going. And I think that made a big impact on her because she felt welcome. Well, thank you for sharing that. I think that's a good example of how things were, like you said, with the missionaries having so much of an influence. What happened then to be a... Well, my mom was an only child, so my grandparents never joined the church, but I'm positive that they have now because my grandpa, he was very hard of hearing. He had a hearing aid and couldn't understand much. And so that, I believe, was his excuse to say, I don't want to go there because I sit there and I don't understand anything. At that time, there was no microphone in the meeting rooms or anything. So you literally just had to speak loud and talk to 25 people, maybe. And that takes a while to carry in a room. So that was my grandpa's holdup, I believe. My grandma, when I stayed with them, she made it a point to take me to primary during the week and Sunday to church. And I distinctly remember in her credenza in the living room, she had way far in the back, she had a hymn book that my dad had gotten for her. And she took that hymn book with her to church so she could sing, even though she wasn't too familiar with those hymns. But that's what I remember the most. So I know my parents did the temple ordinances for them as soon as possible after they passed away. And I'm very sure that they both accepted it. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, it does make me wonder though because here we are the early to mid 1950s and in the uk and in other countries there's still forms of rationing going on there are still many repercussions of the war affecting the lives of members of both the church and just of the various different societies but at this point the church is functioning again and has some contact with the church headquarters But I wonder if you could tell us how the post-war conditions were affecting missionary work at this time. I definitely would say it was a very difficult time because the war literally decimated the church. A, because all the missionaries were called off at the beginning of the war, the American missionaries, and literally all the bombings and everything, they did great damage, not just physically in in loss of infrastructure, but also in loss of life. And the reason I'm saying that, I understand in Chemnitz, where I grew up and where my dad was born, they had three units. And I don't know how many members, but they were good-sized units. And after the war, they were basically whittled down to one unit for one reason or another. And I think that made missionary work really difficult because of the fact, A, people were worried, like you said, about just day-to-day living in general, rebuilding what they needed to do, the communist influence, obviously, and also the fact that the East German government was frowning upon people who weren't gainfully employed. And missionaries are never gainfully employed in the world's view. So that was a big thing. And together with the fact that they were still rebuilding at that time, it was very difficult to find housing for the missionaries that were able to serve. My dad was driving an old Opel Olympia. At least it was a vehicle that he could get around and he could go and travel between the different towns and cities, essentially all over East Germany. And when you consider East Germany is about the size of Utah, I would say. So just to give you an idea of the distances, so there were a lot of obstacles. So I've had the opportunity to record interviews with several of the people who had served 
missions right after the war. And I just wanted to throw a couple things in there, and maybe um, Tobias could talk about this too. One of the things that these returned missionaries told me is that many of the people were very hardened because of the horrors of the war. They had this huge distrust of authority, and there wasn't really a place in their stony hearts for the gospel seed to take root and to grow. And even 30 years after the war, when I was a missionary, we would occasionally track into people who had these questions. Where was God when the bombs were falling? Why did God let this happen? Or why were the priests in Germany and the priests in England both blessing the soldiers who were going to go fight each other? You know, it just didn't make a lot of sense to those people. But there were a couple of positive things. Number one, the church was providing food and clothing and missionaries were often involved in distributing that food and clothing. Now, you can be kind of cynical and say, well, yeah, who wouldn't join a church where you're going to get a can of peaches? And they even made a word for people who they thought had done that. The term that I learned was buxenmormonen, can Mormons. In other words, somebody who came to church to get a can of peaches or a can of wheat or something like that. Now, I've interviewed people who said that they were brought to the church because of the welfare supplies that were there, and they joined and stayed true and faithful. And then just one more reason, some people had experienced these horrors of war. They were displaced, they were wounded, they were emotionally traumatized, but that also softened their hearts, and they wanted something to hope for, and the missionaries offered that. Talking a lot about the role of missionaries and the missionary experience, but can either of you give us any additional insights into how the German Democratic Republic viewed or treated the church in general and its members? Well, we're talking about an American church and communist government that's very closely affiliated with Russia or the Soviet Union at that time. And I think there was definitely a conflict of interest that they didn't really realize. Because the way I understood it all the time that the GDR was in existence, that they really did not allow any new religious groups or churches, organizations to form or to take hold. But I was always told that the constitution that we had in East Germany was offering freedom of religion. So that was a very fine line. But the reason why the church was allowed to operate in East Germany after the war was because it was in existence before the war. It was not something new. It was something that was established. It just got really hammered during the war, like pretty much everything, everybody. Just to add to that, as I thought about the people that I interviewed, including Henry Burkhardt, I thought of three words that would sort of describe how the government viewed the church and its members. One is suspicion. They were viewed with suspicion, as Tobias alluded to. The second one would be derision. They were viewed with derision because they were actively participating in a religion. And at this time, atheism was being taught in the schools because religion was the opium of the people, according to Lenin. And finally, I think there was a lot of contempt that members of the church who actively participated were viewed with contempt because they were suspected of being disloyal. They weren't falling into line and marching with communist doctrine. I think that brings up an interesting point because here we have your father 
people are keeping an eye on him. They're trying to limit some of his activities. There's all of this suspicion, contempt, as Met said. But I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your father's relationship to the government. How did he see himself in relationship to the East German government at the time? I think he interacted with the government because that was what he was called to do, and nothing else mattered. The impression that I always had, he said, I've been asked by the president to do this, and I need to do it. Ultimately, I need to do what I'm being asked to do by the church leaders. That was the overarching sense that I always had of his actions. If I might add, I think that's amazing that he was able to set aside any personal grievances or prejudices that he may have had as a result of the way he was treated to do something to try and build bridges with a government that had really not made his life particularly easy, particularly with regards to his church service. So I think that's an inspiring insight. Thank you. Tobias, I'm just wondering if there's anything else you can tell us about your parents' relationship and how they fell in love, especially at such a complicated time. Growing up, I don't think I really heard much about that. A lot of the things that I've learned about my parents in the last decade or so were mainly through write-ups on interviews that people like Matt had done. Let me just throw an idea out there, Tobias, and have you comment on it. By the time your mom and dad met, your dad was already really involved as a church leader. He might have been a counselor to the mission president, and because the mission president couldn't go into the GDR, your dad was essentially running the church. And so I'm thinking your mom could have been a little bit intimidated thinking, wow, here's this Henry, you know, he's a big time church leader. Would he be interested in a young gal like me, you know, a recent convert to the church or whatever? And for some reason, I have it in my mind that your dad was a little bit shy and so involved in church that he didn't become the kind of suave dating guy. Might have been a little bit of awkwardness at the beginning. So if that's all true, you can say, yeah, that's true. If not, we can delete this from the podcast. <laughs> but just kind of imagine a Hollywood movie of the big time church leader walking in with his suit and tie, you know, representing the mission president and the young gal saying, whoa, look at that guy. I think you probably nailed it pretty good. Well, there seems to be so many barriers facing Henry and Inga and their future together. I wonder if you could tell us how did they overcome some of these challenges? Well, I think it was completely my dad's lifestyle due to the fact that he was a mission leader. So he was gone every weekend, Saturday and Sunday, visiting all the wards and branches or the units in East Germany. They had, I think, about 49 or 47, something in that number. And so that keeps you busy. I mean, just counting, you have 52 weeks and you have to go to visit everybody. So he was gone frequently. So that brings up a, an interesting point. I mean, your mother is not just serving in the church in her own right and raising a family, but she's giving up many hours of her husband to the church. How did she react to that? I'm sure that she found it difficult, especially when I came. <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I suspect that my parents dis discussed that before they get married and worked it all out, knowing that it would be not just the perfect marriage with husband coming home every night and then dinners on the table, that kind of stuff. 
but I know that my mom relied heavily on her friends when she needed to talk to somebody grown up. It wasn't just that he was not there on the weekends, but he also was gone during the week. He left Tuesday morning before the sun came up, and he came back Thursday night. He worked in the mission office in Dresden, which is about an hour away from Chemnitz, where we lived. During that time, he worked a lot more than eight hours a day. He slept in his office and just ate every once in a while when somebody fixed some food for him, or every once in a while he fixed himself some, but just very, very spartan circumstances. So interrupting him frequently wouldn't do because then he wouldn't get the administrative work done that he needed to do to keep the temporal affairs of the church going. So she relied heavily on a few very good friends. Well, that's such a demanding calling for anyone, and especially this young couple. So I appreciate you sharing a little bit about how they were able to navigate this complication in their early marriage. It seems like they really heavily relied on their faith. So again, thank you. Well, if I can add something, yeah. what you just said, early marriage, that actually went on pretty much until my dad was called as temple president in 1984. And then in 85, when the temple was dedicated, they got to move into a single family home that the church had built for the temple president. That was the first time that they spent every day of the week together. That's really neat. Can you tell us about any other East German saints from around this time who are also serving in the church? Let me talk about what it meant to serve in the church. I don't know if we in North America can fully appreciate what it was like to have to make that decision Am I going to be active in the church and accept and receive callings and magnify those callings when that might jeopardize my job, my children's education, whether or not I get a car or a telephone, whether or not the secret police, the Stasi, is going to come and put a listening device in my apartment? And I think after a while, and this might creep into volume four, but after a while, some of the Latter-day Saints I met and interviewed knew that they were being constantly spied upon. Their telephones were bugged, their apartments were bugged, their mail was opened because they had chosen to be active in and to serve in the church. And the church was seen as this potentially a cover organization for the CIA or something like that. You know, I've never had to lay it all on the line to be a primary teacher or to serve in a bishopric, and I'm grateful for that. But I'm also grateful for the strength that I felt as I met with some of these leaders who did lay it all on the line to be a branch president or just teach Sunday school or something like that. I guess from my perspective, I just look at some of the sacrifices and choices that the East German Latter-day Saints had to make, and I'm inspired by those as just a regular average Latter-day Saint saying, would I do that? Could I do that? And I think those are worthwhile questions. And here I'm tooting the history horn. But if we look back at history and say, if I read in the Book of Mormon, could I do this? If I study the church in the German Democratic Republic, could I do this? And will those questions help me stay on the covenant path? I think every generation has some people that they can look up to and maybe use as an example to say, hey, they made it, I can make it. I think the uplifting thing, that's what is important. That's one reason, in my opinion, that we have the saints' books and that we can learn from history and not forget about it. 
Tobias has quoted President Uchtdorf a couple of times, and I'm thinking about a quote from a general conference talk that he gave where he was referring to the 19th century pioneers, and he said, you know what? Those aren't my people. I joined the church way later than that. I never had anybody who crossed the plains and made those kind of sacrifices. And then he said, but they are part of my spiritual heritage as a member of the church. And I want to kind of twist that around a little bit and say that I believe that Henry and Inga Burkhardt are part of my heritage as a Latter-day Saint, that I can look to them, not putting them on a pedestal, but just the way that they lived, the way that they let their lights so shine, that I can say, man, you know, here's somebody who consecrated himself to the Lord. And I get distracted so easily by the things of the world or whatever. And it just goes back to those questions, where am I on the covenant path? Because I'm surrounded by good examples of people who were smack dab in the center. Well, we would love to thank you both so much for joining us today in the podcast and sharing your insightful experiences and observations about the church in East Germany. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. You're welcome. It was a great experience. Nicht zu danken, as we say in German. Just kind of a weird way of saying thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you took away some new insights into this volume. And we would love to hear your thoughts, opinions, questions, and insights from this chapter of Saints. And you can email saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. It would be great to hear from you. <laughs>